Sorry, wait, wrong, wrong song. My mistake. You Hold the wrong on. Song again, Tim? Hold on. You're an idiot. Here we go. What a meathead. Who? Yeah. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Uh-huh. Who? Yeah. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Silk y'all. All right, folks, we're into the last stretch of the Drew Marshall Show. Thanks for tuning in. It's been a weird show for me because I'm asleep. Um, it's funny, none of us have really noticed Shut that. up. You've been so cheeky to me today. Because you are asleep, but I'm getting away with it. It's true. <laughs> it's Terrorism Update with DeBalm, Mubin Shake. He's in the house. First time in the studio. First time we've been able to meet our good friend, Mubin Shake. Ex-Muslim extremist turned undercover intelligence operative, uh, author of Undercover Jihadi. Can I just read your whole stinking bio here so we set this up properly? Do you mind? Can you scooch in a little of the mic? I thought you'd done a lot of media. What are you doing? Uh, Mubin Sheikh was born and raised in Canada, but at age 19 became a supporter of the militant jihadi culture. Uh, Where? Here in Canada? Yeah, here in Canada. Where? After uh, Greater Toronto area, really Scarborough. I mean, downtown. So after '95, when I came back from Pakistan, I had I had just met the Taliban while I was there. Uh, what they, do you mean you met the Taliban? Yeah, right. you what know, did I say it like Mr. Taliban? How do you meet the Taliban? Did you go looking for them? No, no, I didn't. Um, I when I was I went to I went on this four month religious trip. Two months to India, two months to Pakistan. And um, the group that I was with, the whole thing is to go to other Muslims and basically evangelize other Muslims to say, you know, to bring about change in the world, you have to pray more, fast more. And so, uh, you know, I was just walking about the area where I was and, um, and I looked and I could see some people, beards, robes, turban. I thought, oh, these are theologians. Let's go and talk to them. And as I came closer... I realized that they had they were guns. Armed. Yeah, they had guns, uh, rocket propelled grenade, AK 47s. I'm sorry, as you got closer, you noticed those? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't see those from. No, no, it was like it was pretty far from uh, where you I thought they were just going. happy to see them. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you go up to them, and then did they, did they all of a sudden see you, maybe hear your American, North American accent, and go, ooh, we need to hook into this guy? Yeah, well, they were very intrigued. I could see by their body language and eye movements. They were asking him, the, the translator that I was with, uh, you know, and then he was saying, oh, from Canada, I heard Canada students. So they were, then they knew that there were this, this group of students from Canada who had come up. And, uh, and so they were like, oh, okay, well, we'll come and see you guys a little bit later. Do they look at you and lick their lips because you are a Westerner in the age group who could potentially uh, become their s- disenfranchised sleeper back in the homeland? Well, it's it, it's it, it's different with the Taliban because they were they were not a global they're not a global um, uh, movement. They're really localized to Afghanistan, Pakistan, and especially '95 after you know five years of civil war post um, Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan. They were really just interested in coming to power in Afghanistan. They really didn't. And, and they still haven't to this day. They're not responsible for any plots 
in North America. So for them, it was just a, um, an enigma. You know, it was weird. Did I just hear you say the Taliban has never been responsible for any plots in North America? Yeah, that's right. The the only plot that it was a Pakistani Taliban of uh, Shazad, the Times Square so-called Times Square bomber, but the, you know the bomb didn't go off. Don't. That was yeah, that was Pakistan Taliban. But the Afghan Taliban have not been involved. Oh, the Afghan yeah, Taliban. The Afghan. So who were the Taliban that were involved in 9-11? Uh, no, so, so... Or did I just get that totally wrong? Yeah, it was... It, yeah, Al-Qaeda. It's, Hello. It's, it's a, yeah. Uh, but can I just tell you I'm so tired? <laughs> did I mention that at the start? I knew you it was Al-Qaeda. mentioned it yet. It's, it's hard Hold to... Hold on. No, let's, let's do this right now. Yeah. What's the difference between Taliban... and Taliban, I keep saying Taliban. it that way. Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS, and ISIL. Go. It's Taliban. <laughs> <laughs> get it right. Uh, <laughs> I can't say that stuff. <laughs> Although I sometimes. Yeah. That's so so you have you have um, if you if you, you need to go back to ninety five. Let's say where I was and and the, the 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 Afghan Taliban were the product of the end result of the civil war between the Mujahideen groups that we that the West was supporting in Afghanistan fighting the Russians. Okay, so there was no Taliban. There was just quote unquote Mujahideen, which is those who do jihad. Um, so we supported that. The jihad was okay then. Uh, the home, the home address system in Pakistan was leveraged by the Americans, the Saudis, and the Pakistani intelligence. These three, and to give rise to this fighting force that would take on the Russians. So the Russians are evicted in '89, and until '94, there's a civil war between those groups. That dies down, and this new group, the Taliban, emerged. That's 1995. So what happens is Bin Laden and company were with the Mujahideen groups uh, that were supported by the U.S., Saudi, and... Church so, <laughs> so the thing, and then people say, you know, the, that the U.S. created these groups. That's actually not completely correct. Uh, all the money that was going to the Arab groups uh, went through the Arab, went through Saudi's intelligence and the Pakistani intelligence. Uh, so there's no direct link between Bin Laden and the CIA. You could say there was an indirect link, but the more direct link was with the Saudis and the Pakistanis. Dude, you have just ticked off all the conspiracy theorists in the world. Well, I'm sorry. Truth truth is a bitter pill to swallow. Alex Jones, are you <laughs> listening <laughs> to the Drew Marshall Show? Alex I guess Jones. I can hear job, him screaming, man. actually. He's a nut job. So, then, so then what happens is uh, 95, uh, Bin Laden and the Arab groups, they now um, you know, uh, join up with the Taliban. The Taliban give them refuge in Afghanistan. And, um, you know, the story goes that al-Qaeda did plot and plan nine, the 9-11 attacks. Um, and the Taliban were not involved in the planning of the attacks. The Taliban were simply harboring him. And that's why the West went in and bombed the Afghanis, because they refused to give him up. So that's 2001. Um, and then you have, so now you have al-Qaeda, and then it's different branches. So al-Qaeda in the Maghrib, which is in Africa, this is the group that uh, was responsible for the Mali uh, ho- hotel siege. Is that Boko Haram? Uh, no, that's Boko Haram's in Nigeria. Oh, my God. So, yeah, they became Is that an affiliate. a band? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. In a garden of Eden, baby. Okay, shut up. <laughs> Don't get him started. Keep going. Yes. So, so, um, so you have the affiliates post 9 11. Um, and then what happened was, of course, the wars in Afghanistan, wars in Iraq. And in Iraq, you had a Saddam regime, the Baathists, uh, who were in power. The Americans come in, remove them from power, get rid of the military intelligence apparatus put in the Shia government because it's a majority Shia country and uh, start to fight Al-Qaeda that's in Iraq. But the Ba'athists who have been kicked out join up with Al-Qaeda. And in fact, the U.S. begins to house them both in the same camp, Camp Bucca, B-U-C-C-A. And in Camp Bucca is where the networking between the Ba'athists and the Al-Qaeda groups 
come together. So now what you're looking at, what we call ISIS, ISIL, is really just the Ba'athist regime joined up with what was then Al-Qaeda in Iraq come to take their power back. So when we say ISIS, just means Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. ISIL, just Islamic State in the Levant, which is our westernized term for that whole region. Um, so problem is, is that they're beyond the Levant. They're no longer just in Iraq and Syria. They're in North Africa, um, you know, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Nigeria, Somalia. Uh, I hear there's a new name for them, Daesh. So Daesh, Daesh, Daesh is just a, an Daesh. Arabic acronym of Dawla Islamia Fil Iraq Was Sham. State Islamic in Iraq and Syria in Sham. In so Syria. it's the same name. It's the same name, just an Arabic acronym. Okay. It, it's taken to be. Uh, um, pejorative towards them um, and that's one of the reasons why people are, are using it to make themselves you know sound low culture that was really well done by the way unfortunately all i took out of that was zambuca <laughs> did you okay. did he yeah. not say zambuca yes. we're talking about licorice it's going to be original cure. um i read an article that said uh isis uh, beat the taliban but that i keep saying taliban dang <laughs> That, but that's everything you just said would indicate that that's not true. Well, what's happening? Okay, so what happened is the Afghan, the Taliban split into Afghan and Pakistani Taliban. Okay, and the Pakistani Taliban they're they're at odds with the Afghan Taliban. Um, and what's happened now is ISIS is moving into Afghan Taliban territory. Uh, they're also moving into Al Shabaab territory in Somalia. Al Shabaab is an Al Qaeda affiliate, um, and uh, this is what ISIS has been doing. It's been fighting most of the Muslim groups. Actually, uh, more so than everyone else. We and didn't it's Sunni versus Shiite, right? Shiite. Okay, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> so why we didn't really care until they started screwing with with Westerners, right? You want to knock yeah, yourself out and do your beheadings with each other? Do it. What do we care? Well, I think we've learned that now after Afghanistan, where you know we wanted regime change, we wanted people to embrace Western values, and the reality is, is that you have some places in the world that are still stuck in an old world mentality, right? I mean, they're really no different than they were, you know, a thousand years ago, and that's not an exaggeration. So we we discovered that we couldn't just do that anymore. Uh, so in Afghanistan, for example, we wanted to bring democracy of to Afghanistan, but it's a very tribal society. Uh, you know, you don't just do that overnight. No. So, so yeah, we didn't care until it, it came at our doorstep. The 9-11 attacks prompted uh, Mubin Sheikh to uh, travel to Syria and study Arabic and Islamic studies, deepening his knowledge of Islam. Uh, Mubin eventually relinquished his violent interpretations of Islam and volunteered with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, there's got to be more to that story because that sentence kind of cleans it up a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to just keep it factual and not exaggerate the story. Or how how close did you get to blowing stuff up? <laughs> uh, pretty close, pretty close. Uh, so me, when I was in, still in my mindset, um, I was given the opportunity to go and travel to Yemen, to Pakistan. I knew people who went and, and went to Pakistan and never came back. Never heard from them again. I assume they got killed. Um, I was always on the verge of wanting to go, wanting to go. But I had certain protective factors that kept me here. I had a good family connections, mm. you know, good education. Didn't so come you, from a criminal background. No, so you weren't so. as disenfranchised as these That's other right. uh, kids right. are, really. That's right. I've never heard of a 40-year-old getting, you know, signing up for ISIS and because he's ticked <laughs> off or whatever, right? We're talking kids here doing this stuff. 
Yeah, yeah. It's uh, usually, uh, and, and some people, you know, kind of scoff at this premise, but now they're now they're paying attention a little bit more. It's 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 the young male syndrome. Yeah, you know, where brains are still developing in, until our, until our mid twenties, um, and that's when I started to kind of move away from my extremist thinking. But these are young kids who, especially coming from uh, very conservative backgrounds, can't have like meaningful gender interaction with members of the opposite sex. Uh, so is it any wonder that their narratives include the only way that they can, I mean, it's like sexual nihilism. You'll have a virgin after you kill yourself. I thought it was 72. Every single one of them is overrated. <laughs> okay. okay. So after the first, it just doesn't matter. It's, it's, it doesn't matter. All right. Anonymous, Facebook, Twitter. Really, they're going to have an impact in this whole thing? Yeah, yeah, you'd be surprised. Uh, I mean, what, there are a number of other groups as well. Um, um, Ghost Sack and, and, and Ice Hunter, IS Hunter. There's a whole bunch of hacktivist groups uh, made up of people who are, you know, just students, kids, uh, professionals who are working in government agencies who are kind of moonlighting as... So are these disenfranchised youth but on our side? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they're, they're not the blowy-uppy <laughs> type, right? Right. They're the, well, the, what do well, you call them, a tech, tech terrorist? No, activists. Activists. Yep. Should we be scared of those guys? Because if they get, they got potentially more power than uh, the disenfranchised 20-something-year-old Muslim kids who are wanting to strap C4 to their chest. Yeah, the problem is, is that there's such a, an anti-government um, um, sentiment uh, across the board, whether you're religious, non-religious. So you could have somebody who's just anti-government, doesn't like the you know, laying down of civil liberties for national security, and then they'll hack. They do it all the time. They hack the FBI, D&D. <coughs> uh, so we'll see if they if they pose a, a real existential threat or not. In the studio with our uh, monthly correspondent, terrorism correspondent. <laughs> what do you call yourself, anyway? Does that work? Tal? <laughs> <laughs> Mubin Sheikh. I'm so glad I'm saying your name right, finally. Uh, ex-Muslim extremist turned undercover intelligence operative, author of Undercover Jihadi. Obviously, in this show, we're, we're you know being jokey about things we probably shouldn't be jokey about, but that's how we roll. Uh, but there is some serious stuff, obviously, a ton of serious stuff happening uh, in this. And so we want to open up the phone lines for you to call in and, uh, and ask. You know, we never open up the phone lines these days. The only time we open up the phone lines is for useless television trivia because... It just irritates me sometimes, but I am I, I am happy for you guys to uh, to call in and talk to uh, to Movement Shake. You have seen him all over the media. The day I got off the phone with you when I booked you for today's show, and I turned on the television and watched the news, dude, you were there. Then I I got Ugh. so I turned the channel. You were there. How do you do all these? Uh, I have clones. I have clones. <laughs> Eight seven seven five six nine one two five zero. Activists can call in. Eight seven seven Joy twelve fifty. Anybody listening from anonymous, you already know the number. The um, the phone lines are open for you right now, by the way, and if we don't uh, get anybody, that's fine because we've got lots of stuff to talk about. So, a thousand ISIS sleepers in U.S. and Canada, an expert says. You believe it? No, it's too high a number. Um, the so the French have over a thousand of their citizens who went to Syria, and sleep- why? To well, get trained in this, stuff? yeah, to get yeah to join ISIS. Well, exactly right? why you left, right? Yeah, same well, reason. Yeah, same same thing for them. I mean, they have a much bigger uh, discrimination issue in France. Uh, France has a big, you know, long colonial history in North Africa, uh, in Syria, in particular. In fact, they were they facilitated the the uh, the Assad family coming to power in Syria. Uh, so now we're dealing with his son, right? So uh, so they they have a big, you know 
colonial history, really bad uh, marginalization of Muslims, uh, North Africans especially, in France. So maybe that's a couple of reasons why uh, so many have gone uh, from there. But you don't think there's that many sleepers here, though? No. No, it's a very small number. In Canada, for example, the total number of Canadians that have gone as foreign fighters, to including all countries, Afghanistan, everywhere else, is 120. And to wow. Syria, it's, it's, I mean, even, I mean, obviously less than that. And we have some who have returned back, and, you know, we're watching them. We're, we're watching them. Yeah. Do you, are you allowed to say whatever you want, by the way? Do you have any restrictions on what you yap about? Is there we, anybody watching you saying, dude, shut up? <laughs> the, the only thing I can't talk about is the uh, specifics of the investigations I did while undercover with CSIS. Because like the I Toronto did, 18 stuff? Well, the Toronto 18 is, is spoken about because it's a, it became a public prosecution. And so this information, of course, was, you know, uh, made open in court and it's been reported on and so I can talk about that hmm. but I worked a number of other cases before the Toronto 18 which never saw the light of day and which shall remain so um, how close did you come to you being caught in being in the undercover have you, have you ever been undercover and all of a sudden it almost blew up in your face so to speak yeah there were a couple of times where that that almost happened but uh, you know you just got to stick with it and have your you know, your, your cover stories, everything's straight. Uh, so, for example, with the Toronto case, and I can talk about that because it's public, the, uh, you know, Zachariah Amara, he's one of the main ringleaders of the plot, uh, calls me up suddenly and says, hey, uh, I need to talk to you right away. Come and meet me at uh, the Timmy's, you know, at uh, in north is of Is that Toronto. a mosque? No, no. <laughs> yeah. It is a religious institution in Canada. <laughs> yeah, that is true. <laughs> uh, but he said, you know, come come and meet me. I, it's, it's an emergency. And uh, so I went to meet him, and he's like, look, uh, I need you to go and I need I need you to come with me to get some guns. So without hesitation, I said, sure. And so he said, okay, good, because that was a test. Some people were saying you might be a spy. Ooh. So it was just, dun, just dun, dun, yeah, dun. one of those. Can I ask, can I ask, well, it may not be a quick question, but something maybe that will help clarify some of this. I mean, people are ripping Islam apart as being this horribly violent, justified through, you know, the Syrias and so on and so forth. Um, my understanding is you can trace it all back to Wahhabism, and Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab. Wahhab. I'm not going to try and say it, even though <laughs> Sayyid I Sayyid Abba Yeah, exactly. And then he hooked up Sayyid. with this um, dude named Muhammad uh, bin Saud. That's right. And so there's really a How do you geopolitical. Know this stuff? I do. It's it's a real geopolitical, and and I've always said there's no such thing as a religious war. You just attach religion to it so people will fight because they're not going to fight for money or for power unless you're the one in power. So is it is it fair to is it is it fair to say is it fair to say that you can like it, it's just an extreme form like you know you've got the God hates fags people who interpret scripture a certain way and you know with with it was nothing until oil became a big deal right and then all of a sudden it just was everywhere because it was money and power I'm not trying to justify it but can you help yeah. me understand what this violent sect is all about and it, is it is it connected to Islam or is it just some loony dude who had some crazy ideas and it just got out of hand you know it's uh, so the truth is always longest, somewhere longest in the question middle. ever no no, no like it's, you it's haven't asked important. those questions <laughs> it's, it's a very important question because really you can trace the root of this group to the formation of Saudi Arabia um, let's not forget you know our uh, myth making romanticization of uh, Lawrence of Arabia because yes, he was the works. one facilitating all that. Yes, um, you know the Brits were the Brits didn't like the the, the Turks who had of course, uh, you know they were they were you know in conflict with the Turks. Uh, the Turks had their caliphate, uh, the Ottoman caliphate, 
And what the Brits did was they rose, they joined together basically Ibn Saud, uh, who was you know the Bedouin families that were living in Saudi Arabia at the time, and didn't like the fact that the Turks were ruling over the area. So you had Ibn Saud and then Ibn Abdul Wahhab joined together to create what we call now Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So the house of Ibn Saud, uh, that's Ibn Saud. And what they did was they each legitimized each other. So the Wahhabis said, yep, the uh, Saud family are the legitimate rulers of Saudi Arabia. And the Saudis said, yep, the Wahhabis are the legitimate uh, interpreters of the religion. So uh, they created this um, partnership really for money and power. Um, and and the, one of the first thing they did was they, they invaded, they went into um, uh, Najaf and Karbala, which is Shia holy territory, and started attacking their temples, uh, breaking down their religious structures. So what we see today is ISIS like times 10. Uh, right. they're, they're doing the same thing. They're, they're using the same narratives of your deviant Muslims, you're all apostates. And these are We're, Sunni. That are, yeah, these are Sunni that so are doing So it's like that. Catholic versus Protestant, yeah, same, yeah. same vibe. All and, right. Yeah. And like you said about, you know, violent sects, like the, the vast... We're not talking way. about Jean Gamesh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Bringing the teddy bears. Uh, so, no, it is, it is uh, very much a violent sect. And, and they do. What they're doing is cherry-picking verses. So you have Christian identity movements that are white supremacist in nature, like the KKK calls themselves a Christian yeah. organization. I mean, they might not wear hoods today, but uh, they're still alive and well. All right, folks, uh, we are in the studio. We're just about to take some calls here. The phone lines are open. We're in the studio. I should probably finish that sentence. We're in the studio with uh, Mubin Sheikh, of course. Uh, <laughs> of course we're in the studio. Yeah, Otherwise, it wouldn't work. Just to let you know we're in the studio. <laughs> we're driving on the 407. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a toll-sponsored show. Uh, Ex-Muslim extremist turned undercover intelligence operative author of Undercover Jihadi. Mubin Sheikh is in the studio. All right, let's start taking some calls. Hi, who's this? Is it Tom you're talking to? Uh, it might be. Hi, Tom. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm well. Uh, you're uh, live with uh, Mubin Sheikh. Go ahead. Right, Mubin, I appreciate your informed information that you're able to uh, give us. Could you discuss what is it we keep hearing that they're getting back at us for all the stuff we've done to them in terms of the West, I guess, or whatever. What is it specifically that we've all done to them? And, you know, I'm not trying to be belligerent here, but it seems to me they do a lot more fighting with each other and disenfranchise and then the whole economic opportunity thing very quickly my parents came to this country after the second world war worked their heads off for 40 years all the next generation we got education and etc and we built lives out of it it takes time uh, what is it that prevents them and it seems again maybe it's the advertising on television or the news but it seems they send their kids to these schools where all their learning is you know, head nodding kind of Koran uh, stuff, but why don't they just educate and work their way up and yeah. develop economic opportunities? Okay, good question, Tom. We'll let you go and uh, we'll let uh, Mubin answer. Go ahead, Mubin. Yeah, I mean, very quickly, there are a number of reasons uh, that they that they bring forward as their grievance factors. So, for example, with ISIS in Iraq, this is where ISIS began. Uh, their grievances, the 2003 invasion. I mean, half a million Iraqis were killed in that war. Uh, so, you know, would kind of peeve them off a little bit. Um, but, you know, th that's over there. I mean, in our, in our Western context, uh, it's really a case of uh, what's called vicarious suffering, vicarious deprivation. So, you know, you live here, you're born here, you're raised here. You don't see any of that until somebody gives you a video and says, hey, look at what they're doing to your people. Then mm -hmm. you sit there and you watch it, you watch it, you watch it. It creates an emotional response. And then they tell you, see, you got to do something about it. Uh, lack of economic opportunity is, I mean, somewhat, it, it's one of the m number of factors. 
It's a lack of opportunity. If, you, if you're living in a place where there's no hope for you, there's no future for you, uh, of course you're going to blow yourself up because that's the only option you have left. But it, it goes a lot farther oh, back. Hold on, hold on. We can't. If you're living without any future, you're going to blow yourself up no, because saying, that's I'm the only saying, option? No, no, no. I'm saying like if you look at Palestine and Israel, the Palestinian-Israeli issue. Yeah. Uh, like, for example, before the um, – in Iraq, uh, before the Americans invaded, there was no – actually, before the Western involvement in Lebanon um, and Israel, 1982, I think it was – that was when the first uh, suicide bomber, vehicle-borne improvised explosive device was used in the Marine barracks in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a, a hundreds were killed. Um, and, and, that, and that's a tactic that's used very specifically in a military context. So that's why you see this, especially where there are these military conflicts in Iraq, in Israel, in Syria, um, you know, and now you know, we're seeing in Europe. Tim, you're going to say something? No, I think it, 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 it goes back a lot farther. And you touched on that with the British and the Turks and, and Saud and, you know, all the French and Syria. And, and I think it's important for people to understand that it's not – it's deep-seated. It's been going on for hundreds of years. And no wonder people not – to, not to say it's okay. It's not an excuse. But it definitely paints some understanding. And I was talking about using people as scapegoats for something we've done. And, oh, it must be their fault. Well, if you look at, I mean, it's going to be a 100-year anniversary of Sykes-Picot. Sykes-Picot was an agreement between uh, the Russian, the British, and the French to divide up the Middle East after World War II, uh, after World War uh, One. I, divide up the Middle East uh, between the three countries to then manage accordingly. So all these, you know, borders and, and so the, what the Muslim people are doing is looking back to this romanticized version of history where when we lived under the caliphate, we all lived happily ever after. And this is one of the reasons why what ISIS is doing is trying to pitch, hey, we have this, this is the caliphate reborn. You can reclaim that lost glory. I, you know, just referring back to Tom's call. Does that question kind of question bug you? Because basically what people, I think the majority of people are sitting there going, what the heck did I do to these people that I now need to change my lifestyle to be worried about the fact that I might be shot or blown up or, or my plane might go down? This is carrying things a little too far. Don't be blaming us for all your woes. Uh, because personally, I didn't have anything to do with it. Secondly, uh, that's uh, like, hold on. I got to wind back in this because what I'm trying to say is, you know, bear, I've heard a story that children are being buried alive in graves or something like that out there. So let's just say this. Horrific stuff is going down. Horrific stuff. Inhumane, horrific stuff is going down. And that's because we're fighting over oil. That's because governments in the past didn't treat you nice. That's because you're poor. That's because you're 20. That's because you're using religion to to, uh, to jack up your, your violence. Dude. Yeah, so, I mean, the most immediate context we look at, especially in Iraq, is the 2003 invasion. Um, you know, the, the, it's not that Saddam didn't need to go or that he was a really, really bad person. He was. It's just the manner in which it was done was just not uh, – it wasn't strategic. I mean, they came in. They, you can't just lay off military intelligence police people and just send them off you know, back to their homes. I mean, they have a job, they had status, they need to do something with themselves. And what they're going to do is they're going to lend their skills to the next group that comes around wanting those skills. And that's exactly what happened with ISIS. You all right there? Yeah, I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's go to uh, Chris. Uh, Chris, you're on the Drew Marshall Show with uh, Mubin Sheikh. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to curious about uh, how you came to know Jesus Christ. And was it different with your family when you became a follower? 
Really, you want to take this call? Really? Well, <laughs> Chris, Chris, uh, I don't know if it, uh, we, we we haven't talked about his spiritual life at all, and uh, let's let's just touch on that real brief, real briefly. Are you okay. Muslim? Yeah, I'm Muslim. He's Muslim, but but I, I should say that you know the the Muslims and Christians both believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, and I think theologically this is a point of agreement um, that we need to exploit, especially for like interfaith relations. Huh. Very important. Yeah. In fact, you know, I I grew up, I had this attitude of debating with Christians when I was younger, especially this militant Muslim mentality. Uh, and then I, I came to realize that, you know, what are you going to accomplish by, you know, when you argue with one another, everyone has their faith, everyone is going through trying to figure out, you know, what's my faith, what's my, what's the, what's my role in context of other people's faiths. So I think... Uh, you know, there's there's some theological points that we could go on, but okay, is ISIS Islamic? Yeah, I mean, this is the big question. Right. That, that Hold on, I got quotes. I got quotes. I want to sure, read sure. stuff. I printed sure, off sure. stuff. I'm going to stink and read it. All okay, right. President Barack Obama. Now let's make two things clear. Uh, ISIL is not Islamic. Uh, no religion condones the killing of innocents, and the uh, vast majority of uh, ISIL's victims have been uh, Muslim. And uh, ISIL is certainly not a state. ISIL is a terrorist organization, uh, pure and simple, and it has no uh, vision other than the uh, slaughter of all who stand in its way. That was my Barack Obama impersonation. Pretty good. Almost as good as my Kanye. Yeah. Now there's Majid Nawaz. Do you know who that is? Yeah. Who yeah. is he? Uh, Majid Nawaz was... Uh, I can never say it. Yeah, yeah. Majid, say it again. Majid. Majid Nawaz. Yeah. Uh, he was... Uh, He's the co-founder and chairman of yeah. Quillam. Quilliam. Quilliam, the counter-extremism think tank in the UK. Uh, he was a member of uh, Al-Muhajirun, uh, Hizbut Tahrir, which is a, a, a group that calls for the establishment of the caliphate. Uh, not crazy caliphate, but uh, I guess, you know, somewhat sensible caliphate. Uh, he was imprisoned by the Egyptians because he was basically their call is what they try to do is get Muslim military people to basically uh, run coups over their country okay. and establish an Islamic state. So he was imprisoned by the Egyptians for seven years. OK, well, here's his quote. Of that. Here's his quote. We Muslims must admit there are challenging Quranic passages passages in the Quran that require reinterpretation today. Let us use existing tools of exegesis such as specificity. Uh, restriction, abrogation, and metaphor. Uh, vacuous literalism? Who uses these words? As an interpretive method must be abandoned. It is bankrupt. Only by rejecting a vacuous literalism are we able to condemn in principle ISIS-style slavery, beheading, lashing, amputation, and other medieval practices forever, all of which are in the Quran. This is a struggle within Islam. Reformers either win and get religion-neutral politics or lose and get ISIL-style theocracy. Yeah, um, he's, he's right in the sense that there are verses that need to be um, uh, contained within the historical context in which they appear. So, for example, um, you know, when the Quran talks about slavery, the Quran doesn't talk about slavery in the sense that yeah, you know, beating slaves, like it was like an indentured servitude. And what Islam did was many of the early Muslims were in fact slaves uh, because it promoted equal rights for slaves and free people. Uh, and it was a very different setting than the slavery that the people were coming from. What it did was it gave off ramps. So, for example, if you committed, you know, such and such sin, free a slave. You know, if you if you didn't, if you missed your fast or you, you know, made a mistake, didn't free a slave. So it was all about, you know, removing those things. Hmm. And what, what the problem is today is that, like he said, you know, there's a literalism that grips the Muslim world. 
Uh, they, Same in the Jesus world. Yeah, and, and I think it's not really, it's not changing the book. It's just recognizing that God does not want you to replicate 7th century Arabia. It's very simple. So well said. It really is simple. Amen. And we get it. Like, Jesus people get it because we got, both of our camps got whack jobs, man. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, all right. I, I've got a, a thing I have to read here. We're running out of time, so let me go through this quickly. This is from a, a friend of mine named Sal. He said, I was hoping you were going to have uh, movement on. I like him better than I like you. I <laughs> uh, love his past chats and can't wait to hear his thoughts this week. Questions. Why do you think that the Western leaders did not stand together at the summit meeting and tell ISIS and the world that they know the chess game plot? Do you understand that question? Well, I, I'm, I think that's a reference to the geopoliticking that's happening at the, uh, the highest levels. Uh, you know, you're, what you're dealing with is... By the way, uh, your answers need to be short, man. Okay. You know, you got Saudi versus Iran, two big superpowers, one Sunni, one Shia, each one vying for control over Syria. Uh, you have the Russians who are, you know, um, teamed up with the Iranians. Yeah. The Russians have a port in Tartus. It's their entry point into the Mediterranean. After what the Russians saw happen in Crimea and then they invaded Ukraine, they were not going to let that happen in Syria. And that's why they, they, they went in to protect their – it's all about their money and cur- and, and trade movements uh, – Across the Mediterranean. Right. I actually realize he continues here. It says, that being that ISIS wants to create division in us and for us to refuse refugees. That ISIS wants, needs for us yeah. to do that to bolster their sales marketing for recruiting new disillusioned members, if that is in fact correct. Is it because you don't want to look rattled and give them any more attention than you have to? I think he's talking about the leaders, I guess. Mm-hmm. I wonder if by announcing that the West knows their plan and will indeed continue to settle refugees, could we have sent a strong message to them and the world that we are not afraid? Would it also have prevented the mass hysteria that we are seeing in North America? Did our leaders drop the ball here? Yeah, so, I mean, the the, pla- the passport that was planted, it was planted by the ISIS fighters uh, in Paris. Uh, none of them were Syrian. Uh, none of them are refugees, but they left that there to sabotage this, the refugee uh, issue, and that's exactly what happened. And you have people on the right who have played right into, I mean, ISIS might as well just hand them marching instructions, <laughs> and because that's what they've done, right? And I mean, ISIS wrote in, in uh, Black Flags from Rome, it's one of their manifestos, where they said, we're going to eliminate the gray zone of coexistence. We're going to create life so difficult for Muslims. We're going to do these attacks. Then there will be retaliation on the Muslims. Far-right militias will start attacking the Muslims, and it will just drive Muslims to be further marginalized and into our awaiting arms, basically. Crazy. So, yeah, we're, wow. we're, we got to not do that. Man, you are such a good communicator. Um, can you do 10 seconds on this? Should we be tripping out about the fact that 25,000 Syrians are coming? No. Yes or no? No, absolutely not. So if one of them does something bad, right, so blows up something, you're going to come back in the show and say, oh, yeah, I guess I was wrong? Well, I would say, uh, I would say, well, one guy doesn't, you know, speak for 25,000. No, but that's why we stop. That's why we don't do it, because we can't filter that stuff out. Yeah, well, we, we need to learn how to filter. That's the yeah, problem. That's we, All right. All yeah. right. Listen, um, it's the end of the show. Man, I could talk with you. You're just an easy dude to chat with, and I really enjoy you being on the show. And it's a, I, I take it as a personal favor that you do join us each month. Thanks, man. Absolutely. Great, Most welcome. Great to have you. Hey, that's the end of our show. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Uh, we're here next week, and uh, lots of great stuff next week, including a live in-studio yoga session. Yeah, we're going to freak you out with some yoga. Get ready, Tim. Hey, don't forget, if you don't sin, Jesus died for nothing. Bye-bye. So I'll be asking for...